Hello and welcome to this GCP short produced in collaboration with friends of the podcast EY. Our topic is a pretty high profile one for captive owners and managers right now. What exactly is going on with regards to self-procurement taxes in the United States? Joining me to shed some light on recent developments in Washington State, as well as also in Minnesota and New Jersey, and provide some valuable background and analysis on the bigger picture countrywide, is Tim Mann, a partner in the EY Indirect Tax Practice based in Boston, and Connor McKenzie, a senior manager in the National Indirect Tax Practice. We come on to specifics in Washington State, Minnesota and New Jersey shortly, but first Tim begins with the basics on what self-procurement taxes are and whether they can all be traced back to Dodd-Frank. So procurement taxes have actually been known by different names and can vary in application by the various states that impose them. So for example, some states call them self-procurement taxes, others not admitted insurance tax and still others just simply procurement tax. And that's how I'm going to refer to them as well, generally. Procurement taxes have been around since before the uh, Non-Admitted and Reinsurance Reform Act, which was part of Dodd-Frank. And they've been around for a long time. And, And generally what they are is if you're an insured, you need to buy insurance you go to a company that is not licensed in your state, that generally is going to give rise to taxation. So maybe I'll take even a step further back. Going way back to 1945, there was a a bill passed by the US Congress called the McCarran-Ferguson Act. And what that did is that moved all of the regulation of insurance from the federal government to the various states. So what that effectively means is that every state in the U.S. is responsible for administering and regulating its own insurance business. So you have essentially 50 different state commissioners that regulate the business of insurance. That also means that each company that's writing in a state is going to be subject to that state's regulation, including that state's tax laws. Ordinarily, what happens in the insurance world um, from a state tax standpoint is that the insurance company will pay a tax to a state. It's called a premium tax. And it's paid, It's based on the premiums that are written in that state. And generally speaking, if you're licensed in that state, you're subject to that state's premium tax. Where the procurement tax comes in, and if, you know, for those of you that are familiar with sales and use, I kind of think of it the same way. In that case, you have sales and use tax. You have, in some cases, you go out and you buy a product from a store. That's a sales tax, and that vendor is going to be subject to collecting that tax and turning it over to the state. There are some situations, though, where you as the consumer do not have to pay that tax because the vendor isn't required to, to collect and remit that tax. That becomes a use tax, and then you, the purchaser, is directly responsible for remitting that tax to the state. That's essentially what procurement tax is to premium tax. So on the premium tax side, you have the insurance company that sells the insurance contract. They're subject to premium tax generally. But when that company isn't licensed in a state, it's not subject to that state's regulation, and yet you still buy insurance from that company that's not licensed there, that then becomes the use tax side of the transaction. In this case, we call it a procurement tax. So that's what the procurement tax is. You go out and you buy insurance. Um, you know, Generally, you're buying insurance from an admitted carrier in the state, but there are definitely types of insurance, and we'll refer to like the surplus lines market, for example. 
the surplus lines market generally is not regulated. You know, the Lloyd syndicates, for example, they're not generally regulated by all of the states. But what makes surplus lines a little bit different than captive insurance is that most states require surplus lines insurance to be placed through a, a surplus lines broker. What that usually means is that the surplus lines broker has to collect the tax from the insured and turn it over to the state. So in that case, the insured is subject to the tax, not the insurance company. Procurement taxes is basically the same thing as surplus lines tax, with the difference being that you're not going through a surplus lines agent. Instead, you're directly procuring that, that insurance yourself from an unadmitted insurance company. And so the procurement tax comes into play and says, you, the insured, are now responsible for paying the tax to this state based on prior to NRRA, how much risk you had in that state. Post NRRA, it's now based on where your home state is. So that's why I say it's yes and no. Prior to, to NRRA being enacted back in 2011, the instance of procurement tax really only applied in a state to the extent that you had premiums associated with risk in that state. And then Todd Shipyards, which is a very important U.S. Supreme Court case, also came into play and basically says that you are only subject to tax in that state if some other part of the insurance transaction, more than just risk there, is taking place there. So for example, if you make premium payments from a particular state, that's more than just the risk there. But in the Todd Shipyards case, only risk in the state of Texas was not sufficient for the state to impose the procurement tax in that state. And so what ends up happening is under prior to NRA, you could have a number of states in which you have to report, you know, say a relatively small amount of your total premiums and pay procurement tax on them because you're only reporting it to the extent of risk in a state. And then it's even further reduced based on whether or not you actually have to report it under Todd Shipyards. Beginning in 2011 with the NRA, all of a sudden now the burden of taxation is imposed on an insured based on where their home state is. So basically, you look to see where the direction and control of the organization takes place. So for example, New York is a, a large headquarters state for many companies. So a lot of companies deem New York to be its home state. Now, instead of having to pay tax to all these various jurisdictions, you're only paying it to one state, to the state in which you're commercially domiciled or where your, your direction and control is derived from. The NRA, incidentally, was not really intended to go after captive insurance, though the way the language was drafted in the statute, it is broad enough that it, it does apply beyond just the surplus lines market. But that was really the intent of the law was to help surplus lines brokers instead of having to remit tax to you know 50 jurisdictions and do a, a very significant due diligence to come up with a, the number. They said instead, you just have to report it to the one state. And then on the backside, it was intended that there would be a, a sharing of revenue among the states, which frankly has never really transpired. But that was the intent. And so from that perspective, you know, we're only paying tax to one state, and that's the home state. So while it makes the administration for surplus lines agents a little bit easier, it does create you know, potentially a more material tax liability for insureds that now have to pay the procurement tax. You know, again, particularly in those states that are the large headquarters states, you think like the Californias, New Yorks, Texases, et cetera, that all impose a procurement tax. Fantastic. Thank you, Tim. That's a, that was a really thorough uh, introduction there and one of, one of the best explanations of all of those different terminologies that I've actually heard. And Connor, let, let's take this to Washington State then, because as Tim mentioned, 
lots of states do this in different ways. They call it different things. Um, the, the most recent high-profile example has been Washington State recently, uh, where the commissioner took some action since 2018. And there's currently some legislation in the uh, state assembly, which has passed the Senate as we as we record, but has not passed the House yet. But I think we expect it to do so. What has Washington State done, uh, and what is it proposing? So I think probably helpful just a quick background of Washington State is one, it, it doesn't currently have um, a captive insurance legal framework, you know, either as a, you know, a domicile jurisdiction, and it also doesn't have a self-procurement tax regime. And the other thing I think is helpful to know is that Washington, um, it doesn't have a corporate income tax. It has a, um, it's called the B&O tax, and it's, it's basically a, a gross receipts tax that is imposed on a very broad range of um, receipts, basically any kind of receipt that's earned from Washington sources is subject to a tax at rates varying between you know one to two percent or thereabouts. Currently, unauthorized insurance generally needs to be procured through a surplus lines broker. And when it's unauthorized insurance is procured without adherence to the requirements of this, according to Washington State, they say um, you know this is deemed unlawful. And the insurance commissioner in Washington, they've determined that that you know captive insurance under current law generally falls into this latter category in that you know they haven't established the legal framework for for companies to directly procure unauthorized insurance outside of the uh, you know the surplus lines broker context they've gone and pursued uh, enforcement actions against basically all the household names of Washington house headquartered businesses and they looked into whether they were insuring risks through captive insurers and paying premium tax. And basically they thought that, you know, if the captives aren't paying premium tax on those premiums, then, you know, one argument they were making was that if they're not paying premium tax, then it's not exempt from the uh, B&O tax. And um, what they landed on with this legislation was they went with the directly taxing the captives approach and, you know, also requiring them to regulate. And, under this proposed legislation, you know, some details are going to need to be filled in, but I think the key term uh, is this going to apply to an, a, quote, eligible captive insurer, and one of the characteristics is one or more of its insureds have their principal place of business in Washington. One place where I could see this getting confusing is, you know, if you have a large corporate group, right? Say you're predominantly headquartered in Illinois, but maybe you have some division that's headquartered in Washington, you know, would we have to start thinking about this tax? And this is, you know, very early days and just one question that jumped to mind there. They landed on a 2% tax rate and it'll be allocated based on Washington-based risks. One thing that you you didn't get into too much detail there as we were talking about Washington is a lot of the administrative activity that took place prior to this um to this proposal that's you passed the Senate and now is in the in the House, is that the state had gone after a number of captives and they, um, you know, they were pursuing legal. Ultimately, ended up in a court system, and they ended up putting many of those cases on hold pending the outcome of this legislation. But the administrative action that the Washington Commissioner had taken, I think, was was pretty incredible. Um, they had a a whole framework that was put in place, including significant fines and penalties, and and a voluntary disclosure, um, what I'll call a voluntary disclosure program, that was essentially requiring captives to come forward and, and to pay over taxes. 
on any risk that was associated with Washington. What was really striking to me, and maybe it was because they decided to kind of move away from the court system and move down to this legislative fix, was that taxpayers really hadn't come forward and, and far as I know, made a good argument that the state really didn't have the jurisdiction to tax these captives under Todd Shipyards. And so I, I think that if this had gone through and the, some of these cases had actually seen their way through the court system, I think we would have seen some pretty good arguments to say that Washington really lacked the authority to go after the captives because Todd Shipyard says you can't tax them if the only thing you have in the state is risk and there's no other part of that insurance transaction taking place there. I still think, you know, even if this law passes as it currently stands, there's the potential that somebody could try to make that argument, but I think the argument loses a little bit because part of this legislative framework requires the registration of those captives. So question might be, does that registration trump the necessity to have something other than risk in the state? I think it does. And I think that's probably part of the reason why they have that as part of this framework is that that creates the nexus for the state to go after those captives. I've heard plenty of people from the captive industry who, of course, have their own interests, we should we should note, uh, that suggest that exactly as you're suggesting that a part of this legislation and, and particularly the approach from the commissioner going back to 2018 was unconstitutional, was the claim from some in the industry. And, and some believe that if it had been challenged, as you said, it hasn't really been challenged by any taxpayers, but particularly if some of those much larger Fortune 100 type companies in Washington state had challenged it, then it may well have found its way up to appellate level and, and it may have been an interesting debate. And it looks like, unfortunately, we, we won't get that debate because it looks like the taxpayers have compromised on this bill. Tim, how, how does this compare to recent activity we've seen in Minnesota? Because it, the Washington state situation has certainly grabbed the headlines in, in the captive press. The Minnesota one has flown a little bit under the radar from as far as I can tell. Can you give us a little bit of information on that? Yeah. So Minnesota is, is definitely a little bit different. So I'm not sure when Minnesota enacted their procurement tax statute, but it, it certainly predated the 2011 NRRA. But what's interesting about Minnesota is that in 2020, they decided to post on the depart the Minnesota Department of Revenue decided to post on its website some changes to the form IG two fifty five, which is the non admitted insurance uh, tax return for directly placed insurance. And the notable changes to that form are one, it included on the form itself a designation for the type of insurance that you're writing that you're directly placing. And so one of the new designations was captive. So if you're placing insurance with a captive carrier, you would need to denote that. And then the other change that they made was to essentially say that insurance arrangements with a captive insurer are taxable. And so you'd have to report that and pay the 2% tax on that. But the form and the instructions went even beyond that and made a very strong suggestion that this is the policy that existed prior to 2020. And now while the instructions didn't come out and say that directly, it made references to the states and the Department of Revenue's voluntary disclosure program. So it implicitly was saying you have a captive arrangement, it's subject to this tax under NRRA provisions, and those were enacted in 2011. And oh, by the way, you can refer to you know the department's website for 
information on the voluntary disclosure program. Now, for those that aren't familiar, a voluntary disclosure program is basically put in place to allow taxpayers to come forward to voluntarily remit taxes that they owe um, that they had previously not reported for whatever reason. And so, again, implicitly, it was, it was telling taxpayers that this was really the policy prior to 2020. These proposed changes were were floated around in um, the fall of 2020, and they were anticipated that they were going to get enacted or be part of the new form for the 2020 tax year. And generally, procurement taxes are paid um, in the year following. It's usually by the third or fourth month of the year in which the um, the policy is in effect. So for 2020, we would have a form that became available um, in the early part of this year in 2021. Well, as it turns out, the, um, the, the form was updated and exactly as they had proposed back in the fall, it now includes this language for voluntary disclosure as well as for captive arrangements. So, so basically what we're saying now is that Minnesota is taking the position more directly that buying insurance from a captive you're subject to the tax to the extent that you now otherwise meet the NRRA's definition of a home state being Minnesota. So that's that's really the big change in Minnesota. Connor, let's let's move over to New Jersey. We're kind of gradually going across the United States, and we kind of ended up on the East Coast now in in New Jersey. Um, there was a big tax case here with Johnson and Johnson. Came to a conclusion last year, I believe. What 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 was that case about, and what did it tell us about self procurement rules in New Jersey? This is an interesting one. The the tax paid in, in this case, the at issue in the Johnson and Johnson decision, goes back to November 2015. Taxpayer filed a um, $55 million claim for refund of, of self-procurement tax. It paid plus interest that it had paid to the state of New Jersey and basically um, asserted that it had overpaid the tax for those years based on the calculation of the self-procurement tax set forth in the, in the New Jersey's self-procurement tax regime. New Jersey had amended its self-procurement tax um, following enactment of the NRRA in, in um, 2011 and set forth the, the required home state rule. But the Johnson & Johnson argued that the way that New Jersey amended its statutes and I guess and didn't amend its statutes in certain respects was that it allowed it to allocate the amount of premium due to New Jersey based on the, you know, the allocation of New Jersey risks. So unlike in many other states where if it's determined that you're the home state, you know, your home state is in that state and you cured on unauthorized insurance, generally it's an all or nothing approach. You pay tax on the full premium, but the argument here was that based on the way the statutes were written, it applied if your home state was New Jersey, but then the calculation was, was based on an allocation of, of risk to New Jersey. And in this case, it significantly reduced the tax. You know, at the audit level, the refund claim was denied. The, the tax court agreed with the auditors. But then the decision was flipped at the um, Intermediate Appeals Court, and that which was ultimately upheld uh, in December of last year by the New Jersey Supreme Court. And I think that the key point here, and, and you know, what the what the um, Supreme Court zeroed in on is that. The NRRA gives exclusive taxing authority to the to the home state jurisdiction, but it's still left to the states to enact and, and collect the tax within that framework. So in this case, you know, New Jersey had enacted that required home state language, but in their self-procurement tax, they still had this um, language, which was pretty commonly seen in pre-NRRA self-procurement tax statutes where the tax is opposed on, quote, upon a subject of insurance resident or located performed in the state. And that was understood to, 
to mean, you know, risk located in the state or, you know, um, risks uh, insured within the state. So, so that's the key takeaway, right, is that, you know, the details matter. The, the NRA, you know, sets the kind of the guardrails that you have to do. But as long as you're within those guardrails, you know, it's kind of up to the state to enact the tax. And, and in this case, um, you know, as uh, interpreted by the New Jersey Supreme Court, they determined that the way that New Jersey had, in fact, you know, enacted their statutes, it, it allowed a home state uh, insured in New Jersey to allocate based on underlying risk. That's really fascinating. As you said, the details definitely matter in all of these cases and all of these different laws and, and way that states go about them. And I, I find the New Jersey case really fascinating because it's it's almost, in, in some regards, in simple terms, the reverse of what's been happening in, in Washington state. That Washington state legislation is, is actually got a 10-year look back as well. So they're looking to actually collect 10 years of of this 2% tax, whereas it's Johnson Johnson have successfully argued that they're owed having overpaid for the last uh, five or so years. So r- really interesting. Let's finish then, Tim, as, as we've all touched upon, very different stories in very different states and very different approaches. And there's probably at least 10 or so other states with really interesting approaches to this that we haven't touched upon. H- how do you expect this issue to, to play out in in other states in the coming years, are there any ones we need to have a particular eye on that the captive owners need to have an eye on? Or what, what do you think? This, how is this going to evolve? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that if you look at Washington and what they're doing, I, I would think that there is certainly a risk, and I'm, I'm sure there's an interest among the states, particularly those states that do not have a procurement tax currently, to go after captive insurance arrangements in a similar way. Most states have a procurement tax. There there are a handful, though, that do not currently have one in any shape or form. So those would be certainly states that are going to try to mirror or in some way at least follow and maybe emulate what Washington is doing right now. Because as we in the entire world know, we're, we're kind of in this pandemic mode. And so states, while they did have better collections in general than they were expecting during COVID, they still are looking for revenue. And so I think that as states look for revenue sources, I think that's where we start to see some of these more unique taxing regimes that can come into play. I think Washington is a very novel concept, and I could see other states trying to emulate that. I think the other place that we could see some potential challenge or, or uncertainty going forward is in situations like where if we take the Johnson & Johnson decision, and while we have that situation because of the way the state legislature enacted the law and didn't completely enact it for both surplus lines tax as well as for procurement tax purposes, you effectively now have a procurement tax statute in New Jersey that is unchanged from what it had previously. So ultimately, arguably at least, you could have a taxpayer that has to pay a part of its tax to New Jersey to the extent of risk in the state if they otherwise have nexus with the state. Now, I think you still have, and Connor, you kind of hit on this, you have this um, this gating question of whether or not it's the home state. I don't know if we we know for sure whether a state like New Jersey could still go after taxpayers if it otherwise has nexus based on its old statute, but I think there's a potential there anyway. But what I'm really more concerned about is there are other states that did not fully enact the NRRA or did not repeal some of their old statutory framework and still have that language on the books that talks about risk located in the state. So can we run into a situation where an insured pays 100% tax and is compliant with the home state rule in a particular state? And just you know, hypothetically using the example of New York, they pay 100% to New York, but let's say that New Jersey says that you also have to pay based on the risk that's located in our state. Or if there's another state that has that similar type of language, 
do you run the risk of having to now pay more than 100% to a particular state? I, I guess the, the silver lining to all of this is that for the most part, states really haven't been aggressive with procurement taxes. You know, We as an accounting firm and, and certainly the others in the big four and, and even beyond, we talk to our clients about this tax. You know, We make sure that they're compliant and are aware of the risks and all of that. But even with that, many states just simply don't administer this tax and they don't pay a lot of attention to it. I can tell you that I had um, a situation a couple of years ago where we had a client pay a tax to a state and I spent about a year working with the state to help them understand why they were entitled to that tax. And they finally did collect yeah. it, but it's it was ridiculous. The, so the silver lining though is this, that many states just simply don't administer this tax. So while there's an issue here, it might be more hypothetical until the states really start to become more aggressive on it. There are some states that are aggressive, um, and those are the ones that we really need to pay attention to and and be out front of, um, you know, like a Washington and, and the things that they were doing out there, for example. So thank you to Tim and Connor at EY for what was a really informative and valuable update on a real minefield that is self-procurement taxes in the United States right now, the legal background um, that is influencing them, and the current state of play in a few hotspots. For more information on EY and their captive practice, please do visit theglobalcaptivepodcast.com forward slash EY, and there are further links in the episode description as well. In the meantime, stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives. <music> <laughs>